Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 228 recap. I'm Mike Schmidt, a contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund open source Bitcoin developers. Hey, Merch. Hi, I'm Merch. I am also an Optech contributor and I work at Chaincode Labs. All right. Uh, well, we have one news item this week, a few releases, and five PRs to review. All right, let's jump into the newsletter. Um, so Antoine Riard posted to the Lightning Dev mailing list a proposal around reputation credentials to mitigate jamming attacks. And so we, we've had a, a couple of discussions on this recently, but as a quick overview, in Lightning, you have channels between nodes and one potential, uh, a couple of potential attack vectors under a class of attacks called channel jamming attacks are either filling up the limited HTLC slots for a particular between particular nodes or filling up the value or liquidity uh, in those channels. And so both of those types of attacks are called channel jamming attacks. And we had some uh, research that Clara and Sergey had published a few weeks ago and Clara came on and, and discussed some of that on recap. Um, I think that was 226, but some of the research that they've done and, and some potential recommended paths forward. And Antoine has a post here to the Lightning Dev mailing list that sort of builds on that and, and comes up with a uh, credential-based reputation proposal. And I think he has some sample code as well um, and uh, some documentation around a spec for this particular approach. Um, I'll, I'll pause there and, and merge um, any comments on framing this up before we move forward with proposal? Yeah, uh, let me rephrase that. I think it's more of an alternative approach rather than building on top of what we heard about two weeks ago. Um, and uh, let me say one more thing about jamming. So as you said already, you can either block all the slots in the channel, which is the number of payments that can be in flight at the same time, uh, which we uh, store in hash time lock contracts. So for each payment that is being forwarded at a time, we have one hash time lock contract uh, in flight. And the, so we distinguish slow jamming and quick jamming. Slow jamming being uh, somebody fills up uh, one of those limited resources, either the slots or the value, uh, the, the forwarding capacity, and holds it for a very long time. Or quick jamming is just um, very quickly doing a rapid succession of many payments and um, temporarily locking up um, uh, the the limited resource. So these two things require different types of, of fixes, as we heard about two weeks ago. Um, we uh, for for the slow jamming, we noticed that very quickly that while well, somebody is holding our resources and they're not giving them up, and they're they're keeping it for a very low time, so it's easy to recognize. But um, the to rectify it is we just need to 
find out whether or not we want to give resources to people in the first place. Uh, so that's where reputation might come in. And the quick jamming one is um, we just tried to get people to compensate us for every attempt of a payment through our channel with an upfront fee. Uh, to re so these, these are the mitigations from our proposal that we heard two weeks ago. And I think that's relevant because I, I think the new proposal by Antoine is maybe best understood by putting it into the context of the previous. Um, all right, back to you. Yeah, thanks for, for elaborating there. Um, so to, to get into a little bit of what Antoine is proposing, um, right now, when you're spending, you choose a path to the receiving node across multiple hops um, and hopefully independent forwarding nodes. And you can describe instructions about how to forward that on and who to relay next. And there's all kinds of encryption so that everybody only sees the minimum amount that they need in order to perform that routing. And what Antoine is proposing here is that each forwarding node um, should only accept those instructions, those routing instructions, if there's one or more of these introduced credential tokens that were issued previously by that forwarding node. So instead of just sort of blindly following the instructions, I require some sort of credential to even consider routing that payment further. Um, and so there's a couple ideas about how those credentials could be created and distributed. Um, I think Antoine introduces the, the notion of bootstrapping this credential-based system by having upfront fees. Um, but there were some other ideas tossed in the mailing list as well, which we can get to. Um, I'll pause there, Merch, to, to have you uh, opine on uh, I guess the, the conceptual nature of this proposal in, in, in terms of introducing credential tokens as a concept, and then also the idea of distributing these cre credential tokens initially with upfront fees. Right. So the credential tokens, you can think of them as a pass or, or ticket for someone to be able to route a payment through you. And you as a forwarding node would um, basically create a Chamian token, uh, a blinded token that you hand to a potential sender and they hold on to it until they want to use it and then they show, oh, I have a pass, I can send a payment through you. Um, I think what uh, clearly can be said at that point already is <clears throat> the whole introduction of another um, pass system or, or uh, credential system will introduce a lot of complexity because you now have to have a way to acquire them. You have to store them, but uh, remember like what they were for and how, how much payment they, they can uh, allow to pass through. Um, I think the acquisition of them is uh, going to slow down and maybe be a UX issue, especially for someone like a mobile client. Um, I honestly, so lightning is not my main focus of interest. So I'm I'm spitballing a little bit here, and I I've also not followed the whole discussion. I've read into it a little bit now, but so if I'm saying something wrong here, please feel free to to correct me. Um, 
either now or later on our Twitter thread. <clears throat> but um, the the notion that if you're a mobile client and you're only online occasionally, and then when you want to make a payment, you first have to uh, find a route and then acquire tokens for each hop along the route, uh, seems to me like a huge increase in complexity. The benefit that I've perceived uh, that this proposal has so far is where the approach we heard two weeks ago would require you to pay upfront fees that are unconditional and are paid on every attempt for a payment. Uh, with these tokens, you do get some passes and you have to acquire them once, but they are returned to you or you get new tokens whenever you make a successful payment. So while you have to sort of buy yourself or um, make an effort to, to be credentialed for the first time, after that, you can continue to send uh, with the tokens that are returned to you. So then I guess in that scenario that you're you're putting up some value to initially acquire some some trust um, to get those credentials. But moving forward, I guess, based on uh, previous success or speed or et, et cetera, if, if you're a, a good routing partner, then you could potentially be earning those tokens um, outside of just uh, payment. So it does become, I guess, then a reputation-based um, system after that initial bootstrapping, which is somewhat similar to the research we talked about previously, right? I, I think that the um, effective game theory of how it would play out, and the, or I should say the games that people are playing and the positions that they get into would end up being different. So with the... With the proposal we heard two weeks ago, my first instinct would be uh, you you might grant people a trusted status um, if you have out-of-band reasons to do so. So I don't know, your um, friend also comes online with a lightning node and you know that they're not going to try to jam you, so you immediately give them a trusted status as an initial setting. Uh, and it is sort of a... Um, a little bit of good faith that you put into into these people that you provide trust to, they can abuse it probably exactly once, right? Once they uh, send a jam, you will take their status as trusted and relegate them to being only used, uh, being able to only use part of your resources. So with the proposal we heard two weeks ago, you, um, you only score or provide a reputation for your neighbors you keep that locally and uh, for each neighbor you either call them trusted or not trusted and trusted neighbors can use all of your resources so they can uh, use all 483 HTLC slots and they can use the whole capacity for forwarding non-trusted nodes can only use a subset of say maybe uh, you only use three quarters of your resources for non-trusted requests. So a non-trusted node could never jam you because they just never have access to all of your resources. They can, however, uh, lock up your channel for other non-trusted users, but that does not uh, block your trusted peers or um, 
recursively or transitively the the trusted peers of your trusted peers to forward something to you here uh, so so basically when once that is abused you take away the trusted status and they're relegated to be like everybody else here it seems to me like the long con would be i play a good peer for a while and then once i've acquired a ton of these tokens i distribute them to a number of different nodes and then i can jam someone because i have a lot of their tokens and just lock up all their funds with a slow jam I don't know if that that's fair. Yeah. Quick, quick, quick question on that. These Chalmian tokens that are distributed, um, that that's done in a way such that if you issue credentials to the same, um, I guess, entity, uh, there's no, it's not tied. That's not tied, right? So if I issue two credential tokens to you, um, and then you abuse with one of them, I can't then figure out a way to mark that second token as also tainted. Is that right? Correct. So they, they're supposed to be blinded, as in the person that handed them out for their node or their, the node that issued them can recognize, yes, this is a token for me, but he does not know where it came from. He, they're, they're fungible between each other and they're not uh, signed over to a specific recipient. I think there was something in the mailing list that they could be uh, assigned to a specific node so that basically both sides are are locked in but um, I think you can't really that that would make the UX a lot worse also yeah yeah on a similar note we noted in the newsletter that we, I guess uh, Clara actually brought up the uh, whether it was transferable between users and then all of a sudden you get this market place of credential tokens Um yeah, but, but it sounds like because there's th those tokens are issued um, in a blinded way that um, even if there was a marketplace, it, it would you would have to be trusting the person selling you these credential tokens to not spend it um, because there's there's no way to prove the chain of ownership or or prove that they, they couldn't use that token again in the future. Right. And the issue of the token, of course, sees the, sorry, we, we keep saying token and maybe in the context of cryptocurrencies, token is a bad, <laughs> bad term to use because it right. could get confused with shit coins. But um, what we're really talking about is this credential pass. Uh, but uh, why we say token is because it's based on an idea of a Chamian cash token i think so um yeah the the server sees the token when they create it and uh, there's no way to prove that they didn't hand it out to multiple people or that they at some point just stop uh, accepting all of the tokens that they gave out or that they start charging more um credentials for the same amount of forwarding or anything like that. There were a few examples of um, criteria that you might use uh, to distribute credential tokens either initially or in an ongoing way. Um, and you could really use any criteria. Like, like you said, you know, if I know you, I could just give you a bunch of these credential passes or credential tokens, um, you know, based on that it doesn't have to be algorithmic or anything. But one route that was mentioned 
that I was curious of your opinion on. And I think that Antoine mentioned that there would need to be more research into this, but the notion of UTXO ownership proofs, um, what, what are your what are your thoughts on that and on something like that as a criteria to, I guess, earn these credential passes? I I think that this ties into some in, into a push of trying to make Lightning more private. Uh, currently, when people create a channel, they have to put up a um, commitment transaction, and basically they show everyone and tell everyone we have a channel here, and this channel belongs to that UTXO. This is the UTXO that we use to establish the channel. So of course, this creates an on chain footprint that directly links this pseudonymous um, uh, like the, the name of the channel, the nodes node IDs of the channel that are involved, the two channel owners with an on-chain UTXO, right? Uh, so there have been some ideas flying around on how we could be able to prove that we have a UTXO as the two channel owners without revealing which UTXO this is exactly so I think this is related to that idea that, um, hey, I, I showed that we don't we our channel is not virtual, but we actually have a UTXO somewhere, or even that I have an unrelated UTXO of a certain amount, and for this proof I get an initial token. So I, uh, basically, as a way of how I could bootstrap my uh, initial token acquisition, and then after I have tokens and I make good faith payments for a while. I would just basically have enough tokens to keep it rolling. Makes sense. Anything else you'd like to to comment on 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 this proposal? It sounds like we we don't like to get too opinionated here, but it sounds like you're you're preferential to uh, a local reputation based uh, channel jamming attack mitigation versus um, sort of spilling over a lot of logic into um, these tokens and potential marketplace and having things outside of the node itself and additional things to keep track of, et cetera. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, I, I want to add a disclaimer at first here. I, <laughs> I, I'm not a Lightning expert, and I have spent insufficient time to heavily opine on this. But my initial response to reading this feels like it is a lot more complex, and it is not obvious to me what the big benefits is. I think the biggest benefit that I've identified so far is that uh, we wouldn't have the upfront fee. Um, as in, like, you don't pay fees for a failed attempt necessarily. But in a way, you still do, because if a payment doesn't go through, you would lose a credential token, probably. You wouldn't get back the credential token. So... Um, I, I think that uh, if this proposal came up again, I, I would want to know better what how, how it compares to previous ideas and what the benefits are that um, that mitigate the additional complexity. Because I, I don't think it's... It's very easy to argue that this is a lot more complex. I don't think that that is uh, uh, hard to argue at all. So... Why why do we need this additional complexity? What benefit does it have? That that's not obvious to me. 
Well, perhaps if the discussion continues and we end up covering this sort of topic in a future newsletter, we can get Antoine on to um, discuss a little bit more about um, some of the pros and cons and, and some of the feedback that he gets over the, the coming weeks on this proposal. But it sounds like we can maybe wrap up this item. Yeah, yeah. Getting getting the champions of proposals on to give something a fair shake definitely seems like a fair thing to do. Uh, yeah, but yeah. And for the record, we do try to do that every week, but uh, this week Antoine was busy with all other obligations and couldn't join us, unfortunately. All right. Uh, I think yeah, we we can leave it at that. Uh, well, at least I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Uh, we can move on to releases. Uh, this first one is the LND beta RC2 that is, I believe, the same one that we discussed and covered last week. Any comments on that merch? Uh, it still seemed to mostly be a um, bug fix. I think they, they added Taproot. I think that was the same release that... Or no, wait, it's 15.5 already. Yeah, no. I... It, it did have some bugs related to Taproot with remote signing, it says in the release notes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I think I think we talked. Did we talk about 15.5 last week or? Yeah, um, we, we it, might it, have. Wasn't, it wasn't last week's newsletter, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I think there was something with Taproot fixes, but don't know anything else about it. Again, not a lightning expert. And uh, the next release here is just uh, the next release candidate for Core Lightning 22.11. Um, and the release notes are, this release introduces a change in the versioning number scheme, which should be backwards compatible. But I think we discussed that a bit last week as well. Yeah, uh, actually, I looked around last week, and uh, people that are interested in what else is in this new uh, major release, uh, the from the release tag itself, it's a little hard to find, but look at the changelog.md in the main folder of Core Lightning, and you will find a actual write-up list of all the changes. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yep, there it is. Okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, interesting nickname for this release, the Alameda Yield Generator. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Card Lightning is well known to have uh, a um, bit of a competition every time who comes up with the most ridiculous version name. And uh, yeah. Well, that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, okay. Well, one, one thing that maybe we want to comment on, maybe we don't want to comment on, is what's not in the release section this week, 24.0. Uh, well, yeah, so there's there's a story there. Um, right at the time when 24.0 was uh, tagged and packed up as a binary, we noticed that there were two bugs. So one bug is with the new Mac uh, Ventura 13.0 release, uh, there is a crash bug in the GUI for Mac. Um, there's something about when you close the window that the processes don't talk to each other correctly anymore and it causes the Bitcoin client to crash. So very uncool. And the second one is there is an issue with 
and let me try to get that straight. Uh, if you use preset um, UTXOs in a transaction, and I think also run a coin selection, so the preset inputs are not sufficient to pay for that transaction by themselves. It may overcount the preset inputs, and uh, that can cause you to overpay fees in the context of using subtract fee from output. So if you're using your full node with a wallet, I would suggest that you hold off from upgrading to 24.0, even though the binary is available. Uh, there is a bug fix release coming hopefully um, within a week, which is going to be 24.0.1. And uh, we're going to have a fix for the new Macintosh version. And we will, uh, sorry, Mac OS. And we will also fix that wallet. Okay, so a, a bug related if you're running on. Uh, Mac, and then there's a bug. I, I, it wasn't clear to me. It, it's in coin selection, but it, it only applies if you're doing uh, manual uh, coin selection, or, or what's the scenario there? Correct. So if you if you preset inputs as in you do the either via the uh, CLI, the command line interface, or via the there is a tool in Bitcoin Core where you can manually pick your UTXOs you want to use in a transaction. I think either would apply. Uh, it causes the transaction building to start with a preset set of inputs. And there's an issue with um, deduplicating the preset inputs from the available coins with which we run coin selection later. So theoretically, it can happen that if you have preset inputs uh, and also need to pick more from your UTXO pool to build the transaction, that it picks the same ones twice. And obviously, uh, that uh, well, that can either cause you to not have enough funds to, to pay it, or if you do subtract fee from output, that you pay fees for two of the out, uh, for the same output twice. So, um, if you're building transactions with your Bitcoin Core, uh, please hold off on the upgrade. Okay. Thanks for speaking to those, Merch. Um, I figured it was worth mentioning, even though it's not something that's directly in this newsletter. And we could talk about that uh, more in in uh, next week uh, when we note that in the newsletter as well, if there's anything further to discuss. Uh, in terms of notable code and documentation changes, the first one here is Core Lightning 5727. And this PR changes uh, the JSON request ID from numeric to a string type, which at first I thought was a rather bland um, change, but there's actually some interesting rationale for that and, and things that can be done that is noted in the, the documentation, particularly the, the scheme that, that um, Core Lightning is recommending for creating that string identifier and in including um, information um, about the binary and the, the plugin and then having a counter based on that um, is sort of part one. And then part two is that you can chain these identifiers together to come up with a, a bit of 
uh, context. So if a plugin is calling another plugin, which is calling another plugin, um, you sort of get this chaining of the identifier that keeps track of sort of that that call stack, if you if you will, um, and that can I guess help with debugging or or logging or associating these calls um, with with the origin. Um, yeah, let me jump in there a little bit. So this PR specifically deprecates the old numeric. So uh, C Lightning, sorry, Core Lightning has been doing this for a while already, as far as I understand. And yes, the the purpose of the new format is to keep track of the chain of events that led to a request being uh, built and that's helpful for, for debug purposes of course um, yeah yeah I think that's probably good on that item yeah cool uh, next PR here is an eclair PR 2499 quote uh, allows specifying a blinded route to use when using a bolt 12 offer to request payment the route may include a route leading up to the user's node plus additional hops going past it. The hops going past it won't be used, but it'll make it harder for this, the spender to determine how many hops the receiver is from the last non-blinded forwarding node in the route. Uh, so I, I took that literally from uh, the newsletter description. Um, Merch, do you want to augment on maybe what the motivation is behind specifying a blinded route when you, when using offers and, and why you'd want to do that? So uh, we've been talking about offers for a very long time, and I think it's an interesting topic in so far as um, it provides new mechanisms by which nodes can uh, negotiate a payment. So uh, most people are probably familiar with LN invoices, uh, which is bold 11, where essentially the recipient just provides instructions for a potential sender to create a multi-hop payment to them. Uh, encoded as a pre-image that the sender will use to build up the chain of HTLC. And the recipient, of course, has the um, sorry. The recipient has the secret, uh, the pre-image, and the HTLCs have only the the um, uh, the hash of that, which then can be resolved with the pre-image. But anyway, um, with both twelve, you get a whole range of new things that you can do. So you can ask in-band across uh, via the Lightning Network with Onion messages. You can send a message to a node and say, hey, could you please generate an invoice for me? And um, this is called a um, request for an offer. Or, um, yeah, so, or, or, or this, this mechanism is generally described as offers. I guess, you know what, I really need to read up more on Lightning if we're doing so much Lightning every week. <laughs> anyway. We really are, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, maybe, or, maybe that's the third co-host. We, we need to find a Lightning co-host, that's what we need. Um, so, uh, this is pretty popular among a number of implementations, but it's gotten a little pushback from Lightning Labs, that not necessarily because it's a bad idea or 
just because they have different priorities right now that they want to spend their engineering resources on. So the other implementations have been pushing forward on implementation of Bolt 12. Uh, so Core Lightning, Eclair, and um, LDK also have been having here and there a news item. Hey, we can do this part of Bolt 12 now. We can do that part of Bolt 12 now. But um, as we've just seen with research this week, uh, about 90% of the nodes on the network are LND and don't support Bolt 12 yet. So it's it's kind of fun to see how Bolt 12 is getting picked up by um, slowly by this subset of the network. And I hope that eventually it will also encourage uh, Lightning Labs to, to follow suit and start offering more Bolt 12 features. Anyway, this uh, request specifically now, um, one of the, the big benefits of Bolt 12 that it enables is it provides the recipient with an ability to get more privacy. Usually with the Bolt 11 invoice, the recipient has just an invoice here and says, here I am in the network, find a route to me in order to pay me. So the sender has great privacy because they're building the route. And then of course it's a set of onion layers where each hop can only see the the previous node that forwarded it to them and the next node that they're sending it to. And nobody can tell who the endpoints are except the endpoints. So the sender only gets seen by the next hop as the send as sorry, not even the sender, but just the previous node in the chain. And the recipient, of course, has almost no privacy from the sender because the sender knows who they're trying to send to. So with Bolt 12, one of the things that you get is a something we call a blinded route. And the blinded route uh, allows people to include uh, essentially the last few hops already as an onion package in their uh, invoice. So um, instead of knowing the recipient and building a path to the recipient, the sender now builds a route to the outer uh, barrier of that onion package. So maybe if um, Zoe is the recipient, uh, we would send it to Xavier uh, two hops away because Zoe encoded a uh, I hop from Xavier to Yvonne to Zoe in this package and it's not visible to the sender what the last few hops are. Uh, and what I thought was really exciting about this um, uh, news item here now is the realization that you, of course, do not have to uh, leave the last hop as being the recipient. You could make up arbitrary additional hops after that. And the onion might look a little bigger then, but you don't have to use those hops, right? Because Zoe already knows the secret 
uh, if there's two more hops, she would just not build up those HTLCs, but use the secret directly to pull in the payment. Anyway, I, I, I thought that was kind of fun to, to think. Yeah, I think the, the, I think the, the term that I, that I saw in the PR was uh, these these dummy hops. So you could add these dummy hops at the end to, to obfuscate things a bit while actually having the ability to not pass those along, obviously, because, you know, those two after you are actually just dummies. What I what I don't quite understand here is, though, I mean, does it matter what you put in the onion here? Couldn't you just put, uh, like, just random data there? Because nobody but Zoe will unwrap that onion anyway. So uh, what, what does it help to make a dummy hops here instead of just putting a little kernel of, of random data? Uh, that, that would be my follow-up question here, but I haven't looked into it yet. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think I saw something about, you know, random pub keys or something, but yeah, I guess it could just be really anything. Um, yeah, a question for our, our future co-host. Uh, next PR is an LND PR 7122, and it adds support to LND, uh, LNCLI for processing PSVT files in binary format. So uh, BIP-174, which is the BIP that specifies PSVTs, partially signed Bitcoin transactions. In the spec, it notes that those partially signed Bitcoin transactions could be formatted in either base 58 or binary formats. Um, base 64. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so used to saying base 58. Base, base 64 or, or binary. And LND supported the base 64 encoding of PSBTs um, in plain text or, or from a file, but not this binary PSBT format. And so this PR adds the capabilities to, to consume that PSBT in binary format now. Uh, I want to jump in and talk a little bit about the marvels of PSBTs. So, um, do it. Um, if you want to generate a multi-participant transaction, or if you even just want to, uh, by yourself, generate a transaction that is signed by multiple devices, you need to find a way to transfer these partially signed Bitcoin transactions or these incomplete Bitcoin transactions between the participants and the or or between the multiple devices. Uh, so this was a problem that was encountered by by multiple people or entities before and they came up usually with their own ways of doing that so for example when i was working at bitco we had essentially our own format on how we would send the um the incomplete transaction from the server to the client to add their signatures and then the client would sign, send the half-signed transaction back to the server for the server to countersign and get it ready to, to be sent off. So what PSBT did was it created a public standard on how to format all the necessary information so that other parties can provide their, their parts too. 
But now instead of, I don't know, Ledger having a way of doing that, Trezor having a way of doing that, BitGo having a way of doing that, Bitcoin Core having a different way of doing that, we now have a shared language with which we can communicate these partially signed Bitcoin transactions. So uh, BIP174, uh, the PSVT BIP, essentially just came up with a best practice. Here is how we express a incomplete transaction and transfer it over the wire. And uh, yeah, so especially in the context of multi-signature contracting systems like uh, Lightning, uh, having support for PSBTs is pretty useful. And what Lightning, I'm sorry, LNCLI is uh, doing here is it's just catching up to the uh, last bit of BIP 174 that they hadn't been, or actually I haven't verified that, so I should take that back. They are catching up with a piece of the bit that they hadn't done yet. I don't know if it's the very last. <laughs> um, Merch, you have a, a bit of hands-on experience with, with PSBTs. Um, I, I conceptually understand that PSBTs can be encoded in these two different formats, the space 64 or in a file is binary. What? Um, why why have those two options? Why, why not just have one format? Do, do you know the, the rationale and the motivation behind these different formats? Um, I do not, but I can guess. Um, so... What so I wrote this news item actually, and I looked at bit one seventy four uh, briefly. I I think uh, base sixty four would be something that is more human usable. Um, the information is is compactly represented, uh, so it's just sixty four different characters that represent um, well binary data essentially, and uh, that would make it easier to to copy it around or put it on a command line item. So having the plain text base 64 is more convenient to use in the command line. And uh, binary is just the under the hood language of computers. So if we, um, I, I don't know why why the file isn't base 64 as well, but um, maybe it's just, let, let's pick something and that's how we're doing it. Uh, but in a file, we don't care whether it's a little longer or a little shorter. We're gonna have to import the file anyway. We, we only see the file name. So um, whatever benefits binary might have here, uh, the downsides of having a much longer string doesn't affect us here. Um, so uh, back to LND here briefly. I believe that LND already had been using base64 in files as well, but in the BIP, it only specifies the base64 plain text and the binary in the file, so uh, I guess they, they had their own interpretation of how they wanted to do that. Okay, that's fair. Thanks for, thanks for that. Uh, next PR here, LDK1852, um, and that allows LDK to accept a fee rate increase proposed by a channel peer, even if that fee rate isn't high enough to safely keep the channel open at the current time. And digging into this PR a bit, um, LDK, when uh, p potentially in interacting with a channel peer that, let us, let's say, is LND and uses different fee estimation techniques, uh, that LND node may come up with a 
lower fee rate due to that. Um, and because that fee rate may actually be too low in LDK's uh, expectation, LDK, I believe, would previously close that channel. And what this PR changes is, is that in, instead of closing that channel at that already lower fee rate, um, at least take the slightly higher fee rate and close it at that. So this PR changes uh, the behavior to accept that that higher fee rate, even if it is lower than what LDK would recommend to keep the, the channel open um, and then can, can close at that point. Um, Merch, thoughts on that? Did you get a chance to dig into that PR and, and what Blue Matt was talking about with uh, interactions with L&D and their fee estimation? I, I have not dug into this uh, deeply. Uh, so I, I think I want to take another spin at, um, at the problem, the underlying problem here. So when the network, um, as in the on-chain transaction queue, the mempool, uh, starts exhibiting a lot higher fee rates, uh, say, for example, if a unnamed large Bitcoin exchange just decides to do all of their half-yearly consolidations <laughs> in one afternoon and suddenly increases the average fee rates by a factor seven, then uh, a lightning node might say, hey, uh, dear peer, I would like us to increase the unilateral closing fees on our channel in light of the current mempool conditions. And um, could we please uh, renegotiate the state of our channel with new closing transactions that have a higher fee rate? So even if there's maybe not a payment being forwarded, nodes can always uh, ratchet forward the state of their channel and create new closing transactions, right? So what what is the what is happening here is now the partner of LDK is saying, hey, I would like to increase the closing fees of our channel, which is a benign request because the uh, closing fee is always paid by the closing party, I believe. So um the LDK is now instead of saying, yeah, but your fees are still too low and closing the channel, it's going to say, sure, I, I, I like the idea of having more security. Uh, if that makes you comfortable, let's do it. And um, I don't, I'm not sure. I think uh, reading what we had written in our news item, um, a future change may close channels if the fee rate is still too, too uh, low. I think that currently LDK does not hit it with a hammer yet. So it doesn't necessarily get shut down, even if the fee rate is too low still. Yeah, I, I think that that hypothetical um, is maybe exactly what happened here. Yeah, and I, and I guess the uh, the peer to the LDK node in this example of being LND was potentially suggesting fee rates that didn't even meet the mempool minimum fee rate um, due to the large quick increase um, due to those consolidation transactions that were dumped. And so uh, that might have been the motivation for this particular pull request a couple weeks ago. Yes, the timing of this pull request seems auspicious. 17 days ago. <laughs> um, and there, there are uh, 
multiple offending exchanges doing consolidation batches, right? Or or uh, was that was that proven to be one entity? And I know uh, there, there was, yeah, actually there was another one a week later, right? And yeah. so I well. So Binance uh, dumped more than a whole mempool onto the mempool, which was especially funny because now they started pushing out the tail end of their own consolidation transactions from the mempool because they had just submitted too many transactions. Um, that increased the minimum fee rate of, uh, sorry, just, just to reiterate, when I say the mempool, I'm talking about an abstract construct that doesn't in reality exist, but more each node has their own mempool, but they share uh, a very largely overlapping behavior across the network. And I'm talking about what most mempools would contain with the default configuration, right? So the mempool is just shorthand for most of the nodes running with the default configuration will have this, right? Anyway, so the default configuration of Bitcoin Core is to have uh, 300 megabytes of memory as uh, allowed for for keeping track of unconfirmed transactions. And when you dump something like uh, 90 to 110 megabytes of transaction data, unpacking that and putting that into the mempool data structure and looking up the UTXOs that are being spent and adding that data and so forth will uh, end up having about 300 megabyte of deserialized data in the memory. So with only 90 to 110 blocks or so, you tend to exhaust the default limit of uh, full nodes. And when you do that, you raise the minimum fee rate of that full node because they start kicking out transactions that have a lower fee rate. Um, so the lowest fee rate transactions get kicked out first. And if you end up dumping more than a whole mempool on it with 13.5 Satoshi per but you're raising the minimum fee rate for anything to be added to the mempool to 13.5 megabytes. So um, new transactions that paid less than that wouldn't even get accepted to the mempool of a node. They would just say, hey, you don't meet my minimum fee rate. So uh, what I assume happened here and caused LDK to merge this pull request was um, the channel partner of the, the LDK node was saying, hey, I would like to increase the fee rate of our closing transactions because we wouldn't be able to, or it's it's unsafely low. But then I actually propose a fee rate that still didn't meet those 13.5 Satoshis per V-byte. And if they had used that closing transaction, it would still not have gotten into the mempool in the first place. Excellent. Com combining a bit of the the mempool weather report with uh, this um, PR from LDK. I like it. Oh, uh, the second one we can call out too. Crypto.com did a similar bullshit a week later, but at least they dumped a lot less on the mempool, so they didn't monopolize the, the whole mempool, and they only did it at eight sets per V-byte. And both of them overpaid because they could have totally just waited a day longer and done it at one set per V-byte. Slash round, uh, round end. <laughs> uh, I think I asked you this last week or the week 
maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, in dollars or, or I guess in Bitcoin, how, how much did they overpay in these two examples? If you've done the back, back of the napkin math on that. I, I think Binance uh, overpaid by 12 and a half Bitcoins or so, which, well, if they, okay, so, so there's a, a crutch here. A block holds 1 million V-bytes. Uh, a Bitcoin is 100 million sets. So if you buy 100 blocks at one set per V-byte, you're paying exactly one Bitcoin. Well, they paid for about 100 blocks, probably was more like 120 blocks over the few days, and they paid 13.5 sets per V-byte. So they must have paid something like at least 13, 14, uh, if it was 120 uh, plus 20% um, in fees. And I strongly suspect that if they had submitted it at one set per V-byte, since blocks weren't full, they would have, instead of monopolizing the mempool, uh, bid on all the extraneous block space that was available for upper grabs. And so I would say that they overpaid at least at least 10 Bitcoins, even if they could have gone way lower, even if they wanted to get through a bit quicker. And uh, so I would say that's uh, 150000 dollars for consolidations that they paid that they didn't have to. Uh, for crypto.com, I, I didn't do the calculation, but like a magnitude less, maybe. So, so doing the doing that twice a year, even it, when the mempool, the mempool, is fairly empty, uh, costs them roughly three hundred thousand dollars a year to, to to do it this way versus another way. Uh, to, to put it differently, they could pay somebody for a whole fucking year to fix this. <laughs> Yeah, or, or they can consult with you for, for a few months uh, and then uh, donate the rest to charity. Exactly, yes. Well, I don't want to spend a few months on it, but I'm happy to explain it to them. <laughs> well, it doesn't look like CZ from Binance made it into this Twitter space today, so unfortunately we won't be able to ask him directly, but uh, uh, CZ can, can feel free to reach out to Optech if he's concerned about burning those Bitcoins. I, I mean, it means that they obviously are making too much money and it doesn't hurt them enough to fix it. But like when it gets into the range where you can pay a person for a year to work on this, it's it's just, it, it feels like, how about you just fix it once and then save that money? It, it, it's just sort of like, a, I don't know, hard to watch. In, in merch, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but uh, you know, if they have some sort of a script that's, going through and creating a consolidation transaction and then another one and another one, another one. Uh, I mean, can you just add a sleep in there? I mean, is this <laughs> just, just sleeping between broadcasting those, those transactions? Uh, and, and there you go. You trickle them out over, over a week or two. I mean, to be fair, uh, they must be automatically generating a bunch of transactions. And um, since they're probably sending a ton of money around, they are, I would suspect that somebody is creating those offline with a tool and then getting them all signed in a batch. So it's probably a lot more convenient to generate these all at once. And it probably involves 
some level of manual effort somewhere. But yeah, you you could just generate them at a way lower fee, and then instead of dumping them on the mempool immediately, you could you could just trickle them out, and uh, they they would go through just fine, and they would cost a lot less. Well, you've somewhat steel man to Binance's case here, but I, yeah, to, to your point, I think that was not my intention. No, I <laughs> mean, the improvements could be done, and I think it would be compatible with the reasons why they might be doing this. But um, yeah, I yeah yeah never mind. Okay, we'll move to our last PR for this week, which is Libsec P number nine ninety three. And LibSecP has uh, build options, which did not include some experimental uh, modules in the past. And I think these have been labeled as experimental modules for a couple years, it seems. And now these uh, experimental modules are now included by default um, when you build the LibSecP. And those modules are extra keys for working with XLMD pub keys, ECDH, and Schnorr. Elliptic curve Diffie Hellman. It's a, a way to generate a shared secret between two parties. And so the, these uh, additional modules, which were behind the experimental, are now default and included. Um, and, and there was some discussion about a fourth module potentially being built by default. Um, but there were some concerns about how folks might use that uh, particular module, which is labeled recovery. Um, and maybe Merch, you're more familiar with what that module does and, and why it's a concern. But so three were turned on by default now um, for folks to use uh, in LibSecP. And then the one still, you have to sort of override that default if you want to do recovery. I am not super familiar with this. It sounds to me like a few parts of Lipstick P have reached a level of maturity where people are confident to just uh, roll them out by default. Uh, key recovery is... Um, no, I, I don't know enough about it to, to, to opine on this at this point. Prone to misuse was, was from the quote there. Um, so, yes, if you're using Lipstick P, take a look and see if those are, are useful to you. They've been available, but now they're on by default. All right. Thanks, Merch. Thanks. See you around. Bye. Bye.